0: At the moment, I'm working on two things, a new novel about goblins who do crimes in a floating city, and a non-fiction book about anxiety and a panic. And it's because of the second one that I'm speaking to loads of psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, neuroscientists, and other assorted scholars of human dis- The mind. Last episode was a writing ramble, and during that I said something to the effect of, You can't teach writing without teaching the psychology of writing. Now, obviously you can, lots of people do, but you can't teach it effectively, at least that's what I'm contending. It's like only teaching a boxer the mechanics of throwing punches and blocking and not addressing how it's going to feel when a right hook comes steaming out of the blue, crashing into your temple. This was originally going to be one episode. I was just going to touch on the topic of psychology of writing, but I quickly realised I couldn't cover it in a single blast. It just... I feel like you need time, right? Between each little chunk of this, just to t- chew it over. So today we begin a short series on the psychology of writing. I wrote to authors who've been on the show before to ask me about their biggest blocks and in the shows to come we're going to use some of those as jumping off points for looking at our own unhelpful beliefs. Today I'm going to kick off with a short episode laying out some of the territory we'll be operating within. So this shows a a bit more neuroscience-y, a bit more concerned with physiology and we'll be taking the waters of the endocrine system. I am neither a neuroscientist nor an endocrinologist so you might want to flavour what I have to say with the tiniest sprinkling of salt just you know just enough to flavour a boiled egg and the rest of the episodes we're going to be moving away into something closer to talk therapy which isn't my precise wheelhouse either but fuck you in this age of subdoctoral licensing any two-bit charlatan can set themselves up as a french polisher of the soul look at the fine brass nameplate screwed upon my door south norwich is the new harley street and i your prancing purveyor of salves for the weary writing spirit but seriously, I'm not going to be getting into lots of cod. Tell me about your mother, flim-flam. The point isn't to shove you onto the psychiatrist's couch, break you down, and rebuild you. I'm I'm very aware of how that can sometimes be a power trip for the person delivering it. I, I I've worked as a tutor uh, on enough creative writing retreats to know that you know to a certain extent you can you can be slightly. Uh, Ging someone towards hitting some kind of creative wall, uh, smashing to pieces, and then then you help them back out of it. That can feel very productive, and you've got to be very careful because it's not always necessary. Sometimes personal change can be minor and and gentle and, and quite pleasant. You don't have to be especially neurotic around your writing to benefit from what we're going to be talking about either. We can all find ways to sharpen the saw a little, make the process just a little easier. Or... Alternatively, maybe this is knowledge you'll be able to pass on to another writer who needs it someday. I think in creative writing pedagogy, we routinely underestimate how important psychology is. I think maybe a lot of creative writing oh. teachers just aren't 100% self-aware and maybe don't like talking about it because it makes them feel uncomfortable. But the, the fact is, as writers, we're ultra runners finishing even one novel is a is a long old slog craft advice can be so powerful technique is essential don't get me wrong i love those things but all these areas have to be implemented by a human being who exists in the world and experiences emotions everyone's got a plan till they get punched in the face Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three spokes radiating from the axle of our writing cart. One, to help you write more. Two, to help you write better. And three, to help you feel a little bit better as you do so. To that end, I speak to authors, storytellers, publishing luminaries and the occasional expert from across the floor in the sciences asking their advice. I look at listeners first pages and offer feedback on how to make them suck less and sometimes just sometimes I just switch on the mic and let rip with a ticker tape parade of unfiltered mind spew from deep in the caverns of Mr Timothy Clare's heart and brain. That is not what today's episode is. Today I want to talk about what we think when we write. Because writing is kind of thinking out loud, right? What do we think when we write? What kind of mental protocols do we have running in the background? What are the stories we tell ourselves as we tell stories? There's a famous test in psychology called the Montreal Imaging Stress Task, or MIST, used to measure how people perform under stress. It's used a lot because it's actually quite hard to reliably and ethically stress people out in a laboratory situation. You can't just put a revolver to their head or tell them their house is burning down. It's not the 60s. A little gag there about changing ethics in study design for all you fans of the soft sciences. So in the classic mist, you're given some sums to do with a timer that's the that's the setup in the laboratory you're brought in and you're given some sums it's probably like lo- long multiplication or something like that and there's a timer and after doing what they tell you is a, is a trial round to show you how the system works and now to input things you're told to start the test proper the thing is it's a con The whole thing is rigged against you. How you perform in the trial round is actually used by a computer program to set the speed and difficulty of subsequent questions slightly too fast for you to cope with. There's a progress bar on the side of the screen showing you how well other participants did and it moves faster than your own progress bar. And the experimenter is there to give you completely scripted negative feedback like you need to do better. For the sake of the experiment, you must do better. So in this scenario, with a time limit, an unrealistically high difficulty level, social comparison, the the progress bar, and this continual scripted negative social evaluation, what do you think happens? Well, participants reliably experience acute stress Experimenters can test how that stress manifests physiologically through saliva swabs, measuring cortisol, a hormone associated with stress. They also measure the participant's heart rate, even how much they sweat. Now, sometimes the actual, you know, what they're doing in the test, these multiplications, are completely irrelevant they're just trying to get a baseline of how stressed this person gets under pressure and they might compare it with a situation later on where the person has gone through a series of other protocols to see whether they still get the same level of stress i might not surprise you at all to learn that in most studies of creativity and cognitive ability that use the mist acute stress induction impairs performance the traditional explanation is that the activation of the sympathetic nervous system and raised levels of cortisol, adrenaline and noradrenaline reduce our capacity for divergent thinking, increase cognitive load, impair working memory, impair recall and may well down-regulate areas of the brain implicated in higher-order processes like language, which you kind of, like, need for writing. But which, historically, we didn't need in threat situations oh is that the Psych beacon i can see lit on the hill well i guess i'm going to have to plow into some bullshit signs no this isn't bullshit this is the flight fight or freeze response right oh no time's running out we need adrenaline to move faster oh no someone's threatening us we need more power to the muscles so we can punch them in the face or run away what we don't need in evolutionary terms is an improved capacity for constructing the poignant final couplet of a sonnet. Under moments of intense stress, and this fits with what you'd intuitively assume was true, and intuitively is uh, not always a good uh, rubric in science, but in this case, it fits, right? Under moments of intense stress, you get less creative, not more. Unless you're Ashley J. Williams in Army of Darkness, in which case your true virtuosity only truly emerges during close combat with hordes of the evil dead. But the reason I'm telling you this is because without realising it, a huge number of us writers make ourselves subjects in our own personal missed experiments every time we sit down at the laptop. We think, I must write words today sometimes so automatically that it feels like an objective fact rather than a conscious judgment we evaluate our first draft as the words land on the page from our fingers as if we were reading a published novel is this good enough is this good enough we we compare ourselves to other writers usually unfavorably and worst of all we, we keep up that little experimenter in our heads providing negative social evaluation saying you need to do better for the sake of the experiment you need to do better continual self-evaluation while writing is a maladaptive strategy i'm just going to say that you know i want to be nice and even-handed and weigh the pros and cons but it is a maladaptive strategy it doesn't work demonstrably not and tragically when it doesn't many of us double down on it and make the problem much worse almost without realizing it we're constantly asking ourselves have i written enough is it good enough have i made mistakes and to be fair well one i do this and the the tactic is not intrinsically on the face of it illogical if we want to write well we need to hold ourselves to high standards right that makes sense but as we've seen negative evaluation the knowledge that you're being watched and judged and also this sense that maybe time is against you maybe you should keep going how are you keeping up with other people these things make it harder to do most tasks well not just creative ones but especially ones requiring creativity. You may have heard the episode I recorded with the neuroscientist Adam Green, who specialises in the neuroscience of creativity and studies what happens in different parts of the brain when we're attempting various types of tasks that um, require skills from the big domain that is creativity. And um, he also uses exogenous neurostimulation to zap different parts of the brain to see what helps and hinders that. So look, He's talked about this idea of divergent thinking, and it is something is an expansive state of mind that is not well induced under stress. So the act of checking your own work as you write makes it harder to write to a high standard which means when you check, you're more likely to find something wrong with your work because the act of checking is hindering your ability to do it well, which makes you think, oh, thank goodness I caught that mistake. What an idiot I am. I'd better be extra vigilant now to make sure no more mistakes slip through the net. So the behavior gets reinforced. I caught a mistake, that's good. It's really lucky I was looking, right? And you do it more, which makes your performance even worse. You make more mistakes, you find more and so on pretty soon because this is not a pleasant feeling right writing becomes so stress inducing so piecemeal so broken apart that the work you produce is, is stilted and you know you are evaluating yourself and finding yourself wanting it's not pleasurable and you probably give up and who can blame you The counterintuitive answer to all this is to lower your standards, (laughs) to actively court mistakes, slapdash writing cliches. Leave blanks when you can't think of a word or a name or anything like that. You know, you can go and spot research some of this stuff later. I I know it doesn't look like a real book if you leave gaps in or you write a line that isn't ideal... But it's not supposed to be yet. Yeah. That's not a realistic standard to hold it against. You're holding it to a standard it, that it's not reasonable. Nobody writes a first draft that is the final draft that then gets published unless they're self-publishing, in which case, you know, maybe they should at least do a line check. But, like, look, you can just be silly. you like, practice writing deliberately bad scenes. That's how I got out of a period of, like, deep depression and when I wasn't writing at all. That's how I start started my career as a, a poet. I wrote deliberately bad poems and it was a joy. I you know, make lists of names for pubs or racehorses or people. Try writing for five minutes with your eyes closed without stopping. Look, I'm not suggesting there's no value in discernment, redrafting, working hard on a text. You know I espouse those things on this show all the time i'm just saying that writing takes practice and if you aren't enjoying your writing you won't turn up and write and build those creative muscles and so you won't get any better if you hate writing you're just not going to do it you might mean to you might feel this constant guilt about it but you will procrastinate you will procrastinate and you'll be right to procrastinate because your experience of writing is horrible is a horrible torrent of self-abuse. Why would you turn up for that? Of course you're going to get in your own way. You deserve better. You can't learn writing through mistake inhibition. Creativity is, after all, a form of adaptive mistake. You only learn by moving the pen, putting one word after the other, experimenting with different combinations and observing the effects they create. And writing badly, believe it or not, takes practice. For some of us, writing with the perfectionist breaks off is intermittently terrifying. But it's liberating too. And and the good stuff, the inspiration that artists are always talking about, it just seems to pop up out of nowhere. So, relaxation, good, stress, bad, right? Well... Mm. Although I was raised by a pack of wild artists, I am slowly learning the ways of capital S science, and one of the hardest, most frustrating lessons is that if you think you can sum something up in a single sentence, you're probably wrong. The truth isn't usually that simple. In fact, we probably don't know the truth, capital T, capital T, especially in an area like psychology where there are murderously few hard endpoints to loop the red yarn of theory around. I mean, let's take a domain I know intimately, live performance. I've done, I'd guess, a couple of thousand shows now on stage for an hour or more. Just me and a microphone, sometimes not even a microphone. And that is a state where you're very much adrenalised. There's social evaluation. Live performance is an unambiguous stressor. In fact, there are versions of like there are parallel versions of the uh mist experiment that use uh social evaluation where somebody is supposed to deliver something on stage as a fairly reliable inducer of stress that's across most human beings right you know i know performers who who regularly vomit before they go on stage they they have to go and have a big puke and, and and you know that is true of many actors that is true of many stand-ups you know not everyone but a certain subset of people They, they, they you know that is not mild arousal intense gastric distress we're, we're not in rest and digest when we go on stage you're you you're on you're awake and and yet anecdotally, I can point to some of these shows that I've done where I've been match fit, where there's a fair wind behind me in terms of the audiences being on board and the venue being all right. You know, there's no lights out. There's no noise bleed from other venues. i more or less know my material. I'm pretty comfortable. So the basic conditions for a good show are met. And Father Christmas on a bike, it feels like I'm flying. It's not just that I can deliver a script. You know, my subjective experience is that in those moments where things are kind of going right and i feel reasonably comfortable sometimes it's just like time slows down i can see opportunities to add tags to jokes uh tags are like little additional gags you add after the punchline a sort of little follow-up ping I can use what's happening in the room to improvise. You know, I can be spontaneous. I can just say stuff and it all seems to flow out of me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm physically quicker. I've, you know, I've, I've gone on stage with like a sprained ankle. And for that time, I don't feel pain. I can move around like colds seem to be suppressed for the time you're on stage. But more than that, which you'd expect from an adrenalized kind of sympathetic nervous system state. I, I have increased oral fluency. Words seem to come easier. But also I feel like, and this is just a feeling, I feels like a bunch of processes are easier. So I have more space to be creative. This kind of experience is what the psychologist Mihaly, Csikszentmihalyi, called a flow state. You're intensely concentrated on the present moment. You become less self-conscious, less aware of yourself and how others might be evaluating you. You feel increased personal agency, like you're totally in control. Your sense of time is distorted and it and it's very pleasurable. The thing you're doing feels like its own reward. I don't know if you've experienced that with writing. I, I, I think I have. I know that many writers have spoken to say that they have. And although I'm not sure whether the pros produced in a so-called flow state is, is better or worse, it's certainly easier and more pleasurable. Some of the conditions that make entering and maintaining a flow state more likely, according to the various psychologists who subscribe to this model, are working on challenges at the perceived upper end of your perceived ability, ones that stretch you but aren't so great as to make you feel like you've got no control. And also to have some method of feedback to tell whether what you're doing is working or not. Although it can be very pleasurable, you're unlikely to enter a flow state taking a shower because it's low difficulty. And because I suppose the only way you would be getting feedback on how you're doing is if like you were dry, then you'd be going, I'm failing the shower. Or if if, if if you were in physical pain because you'd made the shower too hot, that would also be a failed shower, wouldn't it? But aside from that, you know, the, the feedback is uh, very broad. Now, there are various objections or proposed modifications to flow theory I don't have the time to go into here... Um, that's not true. It's a podcast. I, I I make it. I could make this episode six hours long if I wanted to. I I do have time to list the various objections and proposed modifications to flow theory. I just can't be asked. Suffice to say, I'm not going to the mat for flow. I you know I think there are reasons with anything to just not present things as established psychological fact rather than one model though it does seem to me to be a a useful model of high level human performance that gives us lots to think about a few weeks ago uh, as part of the research for my book I chatted to the psychologist Arne Dietrich who about 15 years ago proposed a possible neurological mechanism that might explain elements of the flow state his transient hypofrontality hypothesis so um, in this hypothetical as yet unproven model additional demands to parts of the brain during what we might think of as good stress when you're running when you're intensely engaged in activity like rock climbing or or fencing or being tied up and whipped during a bdsm session i don't mention that Frivolously, I've read several papers on it that mentioned the uh, transient hyperfrontality hypothesis, your brain having only so much blood to go round down regulates the prefrontal cortex so it can get that sweet, sweet oxygen rich hemoglobin to areas associated with core functions like visual perception or trained clusters of reflexes in, say, the cerebellum this would explain things like perceived time distortion under a flow state as part of the brain responsible for temporal awareness downregulate it also suggests a mechanism by which we might become less self-conscious in those situations the ventromedial prefrontal cortex is associated with social decision making so if there's less blood flow going to it if it's been downregulated you can understand how you'd feel less worry about how you're perceived by others while you were doing this task now there are areas where this theory fits less well i should say it's by no means uh, mainstream when i chatted to arne he, he sees himself as this kind of scorned maverick and you know occam's razor offers the more parsimonious explanation that rather than the entire scientific community being a kind of bunch of hidebound cowards he he may simply be wrong but it is interesting right it it, it's cool um there are certainly a subset of psychologists who who see this as a slightly sort of punk theory that they're all subscribing to and building papers around and and this is part of what science is right we offer theories then we lock them in the publication thunderdome with chainsaw wielding academics death is listening and she will come for the first one who screams And we like death in the soft sciences because it's a rare example of a hard end point, lovely little island of certainty in the data there. But seriously, one thing I'd like to draw your attention to is a qualifier in this description of desired conditions to make the induction of the flow state more likely. So you'll remember I said... You're working at the perceived upper end of your perceived ability. And actually, when motivational speakers and TED Talk wankers are talking about flow, they often strip out the nuance and just say, you're working at the upper end of your ability in a flow state. But that's not true. And the reason they put it in a TED Talk and not in an academic paper is because academic papers are peer-reviewed before and after publication. And people would point out that that's bollocks. Look, It's very hard to lose yourself in a task, to truly emerge with it in this pleasurable, intuitive state if you believe it's beyond your competence. How can you simultaneously experience a sense of mastery while thinking that you're incompetent at the task or it's impossible? Or indeed, If you imagine it so simple as to be barely worth your time, if your self-esteem is is crappy like mine sometimes is, or more specifically, if your confidence in a particular domain like creative writing is circling the plug hole, which, you know, I have different levels of confidence. Uh, We're not all one thing. We don't have static attitudes all the time. You'll know that from your own experience. A lot of tasks are going to seem prima facie intimidating, unreasonable, impossible. You're going to anticipate a lot of frustration and dissatisfaction without even sitting down and beginning them. And that's going to create a lot of psychic noise, a lot of unpleasant stress. It's going to it's going to be metabolically costly. It's going to be distracting. Uh, and that's all before you even begin if you do begin, because of course, for most people, creative writing is an entirely voluntary activity where the rewards seem distant and uncertain. I mean, that is unless you can learn to draw intrinsic pleasure from the act of writing, in which case the rewards are immediate. But you're unlikely to do that if you imagine that storytelling is beyond you. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that the answer therefore is all about geeing yourself up and just saying over and over i can do this i'm brilliant at writing i'm a super writer skill acquisition is an important part of this process you know i i was a really anxious driver when i started out and that anxiety made driving actively less pleasurable right it made me less keen to practice i i dreaded my driving lessons and it made the actual act of driving harder so it was Partially a self fulfilling prophecy. I'd, I'd go into this state of hyper arousal, you know, make some small mistake and that would escalate. There'd be a cascading error where things got harder and harder as I got more stressed and my ability to focus on the task at hand got worse and worse until I couldn't monitor the road properly or work the clutch. But I didn't end up solving it by calming down, though I do believe that that is one vector i'm still deeply anxious under certain circumstances and on certain days though you know i'm working on it for sure i think it's an important thing to work on but what did work for me was working on multiple skills in the domain of driving sounds obvious right but those skills slowly became more natural more automatic And that reduced the cognitive load I was dealing with. And I got good data, right, of seeing myself slowly find things mildly easier. Driving became less mentally taxing as some of those skills became automatized, rather than that ones that I had to consciously think about and control. And that made me less stressed, more confident, which reduced my arousal levels, which allowed easier processing of my surroundings on and on in this lovely virtuous spiral. I enjoy driving now. I'm a weirdo. I offer people lifts just because I quite like being in the car. That's a fairly radical change for me. On the other hand, having a fixed idea of yourself as an anxious writer or unfocused or crap at dialogue or whatever, continually going into writing expecting a bad outcome based on previous outcomes will produce a mindset and a physiological state conducive to stress and struggle it will make it actively harder i don't know for some of you you don't want to hear that because you're like i tim i fucking know <laughs> what are you what do you mean oh yeah feeling stressed is going to make writing harder I, I experience this every day this seems like doom you're saying oh by the way if you're stressed about writing you're going to find writing harder which is going to make you more stressed sorry no, 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 there are interventions we can make at every different, There, like stress and anxiety is a big wheel that has multiple points of failure and we can make stage interventions at any one of those or all of them fucking simultaneously and success in any of these areas around the big kind of like wheel of stress, um, breaks other bits down as well, so yes they're all interrelated and that is simultaneously the fiendishly difficult thing about it, and its greatest weakness so adopting our understanding that writing is a set of connected skills and that when you write you develop your ability in each of those skills almost inevitably if you actually write and pay the slightest bit of attention to what you're doing perhaps taking time to work on specific subdomains of creative writing like dialogue or description can be helpful or keeping a notebook where you play around all of these things are likely to reframe writing as a process a pleasurable journey a path of self-improvement and a kind of exciting game rather than a test and that mental reframing Which I think is more in accordance with reality, actually. I don't think it's just a sort of trick that you're playing on yourself. That reframing helps create the conditions where this pleasant, synergistic, high-functioning state that we call flow is more likely to occur. Now, flow is rare, I should say. If you're not experiencing flow every time you sit down to write, there's not something wrong with you. It is intrinsically temporary because sometimes we get so good at something that then it becomes boring, or we pass through a bit of a scene and we get into a slightly diff- more difficult state. It, it, it's not something we need to cling on to. But next time you sit down to write, you might like to imagine that there's a knock at the door. And it's it's your favourite author, or just someone you associate with calm and relaxed competence in this kind of astral form, this incorporeal psychic projection. And they're like, hey, if you want I could um I could take over for a bit. You take a break, tap out for 20 minutes and while well, I work on this scene. Then with your permission, they step into your body and and you you now see what they see, you feel what they feel as they sit down at the laptop top or open the notebook and begin creating. If you don't like the idea of an outside agency possessing you and who could blame you, you might like to make it you, from a year into the future, the you who knows how this story goes and knows none of this is it's worth worrying about. The story comes, you just need to sit down and let the words flow. I wonder what that would feel like. If it sounds um, silly or dumb as an exercise, fine, not everything works for everyone. On the other hand, my question, as always, is how's your current strategy working out for you? The answer to that tends to be rather revealing. So next time, we're going to dive straight into some of the answers uh, authors who've been previous guests on the show have sent me about their unhelpful beliefs about writing, and I'll be using them as jumping off points to talk about how we might challenge a few assumptions we carry around about our own writing process. I should say, you know, I'm not going to be directly engaging with those authors or attempting to psychoanalyse them. It's not a piece of uh, therapeutic voyeurism, and I'm not a therapist, but what I am good at is uh, editing and redrafting. and We can apply that to thoughts and I think a lot of the things that were sent are things that I've thought at one time or another and I suspect that many of them will be recognisable to you too. Important notice, I have two live events coming up in November. On Friday, November the 1st at 8.30pm, I'm at the National Centre for Writing in Norwich recording a live episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts. I'd love to have your first pages for me to critique live and even more, I'd love to have your physical presence at the gig There's a link in the show notes of today's episode for you to grab a ticket. If you live in the east of England, it would be dandy to see you and hang out. So on November the 6th, a mere some days later, I'm I'm doing an author talk in Bath at a... night called Novel Nights, the event's called The Three Pillars of Writing Bliss and I'm going to talk about writing more, writing better and being a little bit happier as you do so. I'll be drilling down into some of the most important distilled wisdom from nearly 200 episodes of recording this blessed, blessed podcast. So if you live in the west of England it would surely be a delight to see you there also if you live in neither of those places but you are particularly fanatical, and not too worried about your carbon footprint, then it would also be a delight to see you. I don't get out much, and I'm off social media currently, so please do come along if you can make it, and even if you can't, I'd consider it a huge personal favour, which you you might not consider that you owe me, but but, but just just imagine that you do, Um, and uh, it would certainly be a kindness to the organisers of these events if you could share news of them uh, to your followers, and help to spread the word. Please... You know, I'm aware people have put a lot of time into organising things like this and uh, I always want there to be a a nice turnout to reward their faith in me Um, and I'd love to bring a a crowd of lovely writers. Right, that's it. More of this uh, nonsense forthwith. In the meantime, maybe have a little reflect on your experience of writing when you write. Maybe do a teensy bit so you can get a reading of your psychic state. What are the stories you tell yourself when you tell stories? And are they helpful? Until next time, I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.